there was a, a very regimented path forward when you get into med school. And it's always, it always seems like it was very difficult to break away from that. And I think that part of this, this unconscious conflict that I experienced was probably what ended up attracting me to the field of psychiatry, right? To kind of conquer this conflict, if you will, right? Now, I know now that in order to conquer this conflict, you know, you get a good therapist. Please join us every week for a new episode of Understanding the Human Condition with Dr. James Flowers. Dr. Flowers and his most admired mentors, respected colleagues, and VIP guests will share valuable insight into underlying health causes, conditions, and issues. These in-depth yet approachable episodes are a great resource for both private individuals and industry professionals. Our esteemed host, Dr. James Flowers, is one of the most recognized and respected names in the field of chronic pain, mental health, and substance use disorders, both nationally and internationally. Dr. Flowers is the founder of J. Flowers Health Institute, located in Houston, Texas. For more information about J. Flowers Health Institute and its concierge services, go to jflowershealth.com or dial 713-783-6655. And be sure to mention this podcast. Good morning and welcome to Understanding the Human Condition. I'm Shay Butts. I'm your host today, filling in for Dr. James Flowers. I'm the Chief Experience Officer here at J. Flowers Health Institute And I have the privilege and the pleasure of being joined by our friend and colleague, Dr. Frank Chen. Dr. Chen is one of our psychiatrists here at J. Flowers Health. He's board certified by the American Board of Psychiatry and the American Board of Neurology. He's the chief medical officer at Houston Adult Psychiatry and Houston Behavioral Hospital. And just like to say welcome. Good to have you. Thanks, Jay. I think we bump into each other quite a bit in the hallways, and it's great that we're sitting down and having a conversation. So normally, we have a kind of a little witty banter that mm-hmm. goes on, and we have a lot of fun together. So we can do some of that today, but sure. we have to keep our professional hats on, too. Thank you. <laughs> so anyway, I'm really excited to have you here. I think that you bring so much to the table as one of our providers, and we tend to throw you cases that are fairly complex. And so I appreciate your ability to jump in and just be really creative in your approach. Now, I like the challenges. They're the fun ones, right? And and, and really, they make me think a little more. And and that's part of the exercise that I get out of this, you know, because it's, you know, this is a very unique population. And and sometimes you do have to to think about what's happening behind the scene with the developmental background of of someone that may contribute to coming here. So, so yeah, I really do appreciate the... You know, I mean, if you guys want to call it the harder cases, but they really allow me to be challenged. Right, right. Well, the thing that I like to also, when we have guests that come on, I like to talk to people about things that are personal to them. Sure. And so this, what we're talking about today is caring for the caregiver. And I know that you have your own experience, not only as a professional, but also as a son, right? Sure. Would you like to tell a little bit about your story? Or? Yeah, so, you know, I immigrated to the United States back in the uh, 1980s. And like a lot of things got Im- that, that came, to the 19, came to the United States in the 1980s, you know, I have this big stamp that says made in Taiwan. And so from, you know, from an early age, I spent time in Los Angeles and, and very much got into the culture over there. And, but, you know, there's something in the background that was always 
kind of influencing me, this pervasive cultural issue of being in the United States, being Asian American, and having to be kind of stuck in two different cultures. I try to flee from some of that as much as possible. I went, I really, in my early years, I went far, far away from from my parents and went to the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. The ironic thing is that the business school education actually was a, a platform to launch me into medicine. And it sounds illogical, but that's how uh, sometimes the, the, the cultural influences work. Well, right? so, so tell me what you mean. The business school actually launched you into medicine. So what, how did that happen? So, you know, I talked about this familial influence, this cultural influence. They wanted their number one son to be a doctor. Right. Right. And so... No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> right. And so you're stuck. You're stuck between, you know, doing what you want to do, you know, or mm-hmm. you th- what you think you wanted to do at the time and, you know, fulfilling some obligation. Mm-hmm. And this is, it's actually quite powerful, the, the influences that your parents have on you, right? Even into your 20s. And so it was a struggle for me thinking about going to med school. And I, I did. I, get, I got into med school. But there's always sort of this conflict that I struggle with, you know, am I at the right place? Now, as a psychiatrist, you know, practicing for the last 30 years, I look back on that. And really, that's not something that a normal 20-year-old would not struggle with, right? right? I mean, so many 20-year-olds in their quest to find their identity, you know, they think about what they want to do. They think they want to do something and they end up doing something else instead, right? right? And that's all normal, but it's... You know, there was a a very regimented path forward when you get into med school. And it's always, it always seems like it was very difficult to break away from that. And I think that part of this, this unconscious conflict that I experienced was probably what ended up attracting me to the field of psychiatry, Mm -hmm. right? Okay. To kind of, kind of conquer this conflict, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I know now that in order to conquer this conflict, you know, you get a good therapist, Right. It's not something that you can do on your own. Right. And but I do think that, you know, the sense of being lost at that age and the sense of wanting to do something else, the, you know, the the struggles that 20 year olds have. I, you know, I wish I could tell every 20 year old, you know, get started in therapy early so that so that you can kind of be a more secure self. Yeah. You know, just help process your life and the things that are going on in those big challenges and big life decisions right. that we make when our brain is not even fully developed. <laughs> right. You know, so. so often, you know, we feel like we have to fulfill a path, right? It's, you know, it, we feel like a failure if we deviate from that path, right? And sometimes, you know what, when you're 20 years old, you know, you can figure out your path, you can make mistakes, you can pivot, you can turn in every direction and find something that you love to do. Right. But so many people, they feel stuck. They feel like they must fulfill some type of a path. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they're, they feel like a loser, yeah. right? And so this is why I encourage uh, you know, anyone who have these intra-psychic conflicts to start seeing a therapist because they could, you know, having someone out there to help you navigate through those struggles and know what's norm and what's not norm mm-hmm. may, may build a much more secure self. Right. And so, so while... While I was going through this match process in medical school, where you ultimately determine what field you're going to go into, right. I get this call from a girlfriend of my brother says, saying that, you know what, he's acting really bizarre. You know, would you please come over here and see what's going on? And being from a, 
minority family and maybe a lot of families. You know, they, there's not a problem until there's a problem. Right. So we turn a blind eye to some of the warning signals, like, you know, him telling me how much pot he was smoking at the University of California, Berkeley, right? Telling me about, you know, some of the recreational stuff that he was doing. And I figure if he was, you know, going through school, if this was a, a cultural thing that was permissive in, you know, in Northern California, and, you know, who am I to judge? But the devastating phone call was that, you know, he was feeling like people were after him, that someone was using him as an art project. When I got to his place, it was a mess. He literally saved maybe 50 boxes of, you know, empty boxes of uh, Domino's pizza containers and saying that uh, if I throw the stuff away, you know, someone's going to use it. And I remember, you know, at the time I didn't know much about psychiatry. I remember going out for a drive with him and it was about, you know, talking in codes and making sure that no one's listening to our conversation from the nearby cars. What do you do with that? Yeah. And nothing, as you know, Shay, I mean, you've been in the industry for a long time, but as you know, you know, talking to someone with a delusion, a fixed false belief is like talking to a brick wall. You can't right. introduce logic. Right. Right. And so, so that, that was sort of the first entree into this helpless feeling as a family member, mm-hmm. you know, because I can't tell him that you could do X plus Y and then you can get Z. Let's get some help. Yeah. And it was a very helpless feeling. It felt like I had to go along with whatever delusions, you know, otherwise he would not listen to me, you know. So we played this game of, you know, having him dictate what to do. And eventually I got him to move out of there and moved in with me to St. Louis for about a a three-month period of time. And I got to tell you, that was probably three of the most depressing months that I experienced. So is this pre-diagnosis for him? Yeah, this so is pre-medication, pre-any of that, right? Pre-anything, right? That was the first warning that there's some, something going on. And so, so getting him to, you know, acknowledge that he may be at a safer place, you know, halfway around the country was, you know, was helpful. But getting him to acknowledge that he needs help was difficult. We, you know, we can't go to the psychiatrist because this is not something that a psychiatrist could solve. Right. And I really didn't at the time as a, you know, as a graduating medical student, I didn't know really great ways of, of differentiating, you know, major depressive disorder with psychotic feature versus schizophrenia. You know, we, as a naive family member, I just think that, oh, this is something that he's going through that will resolve. And uh, we just got to get him some help and it'll be fine. And it didn't turn out that way, but I, I get to witness the you know, sort of the course of of a person's struggle with mental illness in a very different way from a lot of people because I, you know, I kind of juxtaposed the experience as a family member with the clinical knowledge as I was going through psychiatric residency and seeing that sort of live and just raw. So even in that place where you had some knowledge and you were a professional or in the works of becoming a right physician... You were still dealing with the same thing that our families deal with. Absolutely. Every day, you know, that are providing care, whether it's chronic mental illness or some type of just physical illness. It's a difficult journey. How do you get someone who's reluctant to get care, to get the care that they need? Yeah. Right. And it's such a helpless feeling. 
and certainly it was a struggle even to you know try to connect him to services right right what's the appropriate venue you know how do we go about this it was overwhelming right. and having you know having a care for him for a three month period of time you know was something I never did before I never cared for anyone to that extent as a then 26-year-old. Yeah, right. How do you motivate someone who looks depressed? How do you make sure that they're bathing? How do you right. make sure that they're, you know, they're eating? How do you make sure that they open the drapes so that some sunlight can come in? It was, you know, it was literally so difficult living in a situation like that. And, and so that's, you know, it's part of why sometimes I almost understand some of the struggles that families may have leading up to getting to a client getting help. Right. You know, because it's not just it's not just something that happened yesterday. They've been you know, they've been dealing with this for months, if not years. Right. Well, and I think you do such a nice job with our families that have been dealing with things for a long time. And mm-hmm. it's we have this conversation about compassion fatigue. Sure. Right. And that's something if I'm understanding correctly, that's something that a provider can have, you know, a person who's a therapist that's maybe working with somebody with severe trauma or sure. something or a family member, you know, that they're caring for. And so can you explain, like, kind of what is the definition of compassion fatigue? If Could you sum it up? No, I think you're so vested, you know, in a family member getting well that you end up devoting everything, all your energy to that project. And subsequently, you know, you stop taking care of yourself. Right. right? And you let that project sort of be your existence. And and sometimes you feel like you're the only hope for that person. You know, when you stop taking care of yourself, you may actually not be doing your family member any justice in terms of trying to help them because, you know, you're going to stop. You're going to get depressed. You're going to end up getting anxious. You're going to end up not being able to help, mm-hmm. you're going to end up having someone else try to help you. And, right, right. And, and there's so many family members that I who I've talked to who who just you know who experience those those same struggles that I experienced you know as a caretaker. You know, a, a different episode in my life back in 2018 when my father was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and as even as a seasoned physician, pancreatic cancer was a very different state, space from right. psychiatry. Right. So I was literally trying to digest the treatment, the, you know, the prognosis, the treatment, you know, what can we do? And truthfully, I'll tell you that, you know, I knew I was out of my league. You know, it's not as easy, you know, even as a physician. I think when you have a lot of knowledge about a field in general, right, because you Mm -hmm. and people say, oh, well, you're a doctor, Mm -hmm. Right, that should make it easier, you know, and right. but it doesn't. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, I'm just <laughs> you not get the, the same right. burnout, the same right. exhaustion, and I, I'm not that doctor, right? Yeah. I'm not the the. Uh, you don't uh, know everything, uh, right? You would think, right? <laughs> no, you know, I'm really good at, at forecasting things in psychiatry, but you know, that's because I've been seeing you know patients every day for the last thirty years and, and know their stories and know and can almost forecast you know the progression of the illness very quickly after talking to a patient, but there was absolutely no vision for me when, when it came to pancreatic cancer. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I remember, and I'm sure other families have gone through this and taking care of other, their, their loved ones, but you know, I remember going through the Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, provider directory for the Los Angeles area and, and literally just printed up a thousand 
oncologists, right? right? You know, it, it, you know, I knew, you know, logically. It's kind of like throwing confetti in the air and right. just seeing where it's going to land, right? right? How I, do you know? I, yeah, right. I knew logically that was a futile exercise, right? I mean, how do I know? Right. Right. And, but I, you know, there was just such a need to grasp for some control mm-hmm. that I had to do something. You know, I knew logically as a, you know, as a seasoned psychiatrist that, you know, I'm not going to be able to envision his treatment. You know, I can't do enough research to figure out what is the best path forward because right. I've never seen it before. Right. You know, he's a sample set of one, you know. In my field, I have tons of sample sets. I mean, sure. this, this stuff is easy for me, right? But it was incredibly difficult, you know, struggling with that helplessness, that need for some answers, that need for some control. And then taking, you know, he did well for about, my father did well for about three years, and he very precipitously took a turn for the worse. And that was difficult for me as well, as, you know, being a physician, knowing about death, dealing with death, Knowing about, you know, terms like palliative care and hospice, you know, when I hear those terms as a family member, there's a, there's a very different emotion associated with it. Of course. And it's, it's, and it was a tough situation where, you know, I want to thank my wife and kids for being so patient with me during that period of time, but it was something that I almost had to completely devote myself to, you know, to the extent of having cameras around. I mean, this is the insanity of being a doctor. I had cameras around, not to spy on him, but to make sure he's okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had uh, 24-hour care for him. And we, you know, we, I understood that I had to work as a team with these caretakers. And it was not, you know, having a camera just to, just to micromanage and criticize. And, and that became really exhausting. You know, it's being a caretaker takes a toll. Yeah, for sure. At whatever stage... You're out in your life, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. You know, and, uh, you know, there's, you know, they never really had a course in high school about grief and death, right? And so, you know, how do we approach things like grief and death? And, you know, there's no playbook on this, right? And I know I was grieving. I knew things were difficult. And, you know, luckily, you know, I've had help throughout my life in terms of a safe place to talk about some of this stuff, right? right. So that... I'm going to be okay for my, my family and my patients, right? And, uh, but, you know, a lot of people tough it through. You know, they feel like they have to take on the burden. Tough know? it through or really compartmentalize, fake it till they make it. Right. That was my experience. I was the fake it till you make it girl. You yeah. know, my grandparents became my responsibility. Yeah. And my grandmother had Alzheimer's. And when we had her go into a facility all of a sudden, my grandfather just fell apart. Like, he was super ill, and none of us knew. He had COPD, which we knew, but we didn't really see how sick he actually was until he wasn't caring for her. And, you know, I think that's pretty typical of a yeah. caregiver giving everything to this other person right. and leaving nothing for themselves. And then I found myself mm-hmm. caring for him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And realizing, okay, hold on, <laughs> let's slow down and let's think about what is it that I need? Because I had three kids right. at the time, three right. young kids. And so they needed something from me. My spouse needed something from me. My grandfather needed something from me. And I really had to just get to a place of saying, okay, right. somebody, like someone help me. 
And I had this lovely woman who was a friend of mine, who's a therapist, and she said, let's just have coffee. Mm-hmm. And I said, listen, I don't need therapy for this. I realize that I'm in a really stressful time in my life. And she said, and she said we're just going to have coffee. And and she, she was therapizing you. me. Yeah. yeah, she was. But but she was right. Mm-hmm. I just I was right. so busy with the caring and trying to make sure all the things were done and trying to make everything look great that I didn't realize how bad I looked actually, you know, and how frazzled I was and how fried I was. And so I just started with some meditation and just daily time that I was investing in myself. So I started getting up earlier so that nobody else was awake. You know, and these were just simple suggestions that she had made, you know, how do you care for yourself in those times? So, do you have suggestions or ideas or things that you did to care for yourself or things that you recommend to other people? Well, you know, knowing you long enough, Shay, I I know that, you you know, whenever (laughs) there's a problem, you're going to volunteer yourself and you're going to go after it and solve that problem, right? And so, and there are a lot of people like that around and, you know, there, but it's especially tough when, when you're dealing with, you know, the health and the well-being of, of a loved one, it's, you know, we can't be as objective, right? right? And so we get very much, even as mental health professionals, we get emotionally wrapped up in this. Yeah. Right? And it can be all-consuming, mm-hmm. right? You know, smart people know what they don't know. And so when you, when you get to the place where you're trying to figure stuff out for yourself, you know, think about getting an expert to help you process you know, you're a therapist probably has seen this scenario a million times, mm-hmm. you know, and you're, you know, you're going through it maybe for the first time, maybe for the second time, you know, it's never easy dealing with the, the health and well-being of a family member, right. right? You know, and Shay, there's so many conflicts that can come out in a family system when someone is sick or dying yeah. and arguments between siblings you know, in my case, I had to struggle with this concept of this Chinese concept of having to take care of your elderly. Right. Right. And whether or not you're doing it good enough. Right. And, uh, and it's a very, it's such a, a concept is such a entrenched thought within the Asian community. It, it's incredibly difficult to talk them out of that concept sometimes. But having a sense of obligation, you know, have, not wanting to fail. I mean, the, these are very difficult burdens to take on. And, and so, so look, I recommend that if someone's feeling, you know, stuck as a caretaker, feeling burdened, okay, you know, find a therapist, you know, find a therapist who's gone through this type of scenario a million times so that they can maybe navigate, help you navigate your way through this as opposed to trying to figure everything out yourself. Yeah. You know? I think it's also hard to see the, uh, there's also a lot of guilt and mm-hmm. shame and when you're taking care of someone, if you ever do anything to invest in yourself during that time. Sure. At least there was for me. Sure. It, there was this time of, you know, I should be doing this mm-hmm. instead of, you know, going to get a massage or sure. <laughs> whatever, right. whatever those, you know, those things were. I think the spa is the answer for a lot of things. So. <laughs> well, I mean, those little things that, you know, that helps you preserve yourself, Yeah. you know, and, and you know, being able to care for yourself. You know, if you start neglecting your own personal well-being, your own personal needs, you know, you got to start thinking, you know, am I suffocating as well, right? right. And, and do I have to kind of stop a little bit? And, and I, know, I know it's, you know, there's guilt involved. I know the, 
you play a critical, important role. But if you're so far down the rabbit hole, you know, you may need help at some point mm-hmm. and you won't be able to help others. Right. Right. And so, so make sure that you get the help that you need regardless. You know, take the shame component out of this, right? Yeah. And just be able to, to acknowledge that you need a little help. There's a lot of anxiety associated with taking care of somebody. There's, you know, a lot of emotions. And it's okay to, to see a mental health professional. Right. You know, to just talk, to have, you know, or to have coffee with friends. I think that it's hard to recognize sometimes when you are in those high-stress situations that you're becoming desensitized to the things around you, you know. And that's, I think, a warning sign that you do need some help. You know, Mm -hmm. with things that are, you know, something that will make someone else gasp, (laughs) but you just sort of let it, it rolls off like water off of a duck's back. There's a problem, right? Right. Like, here's your sign. Right. (laughs) Right. I mean, there's a problem if you're crying watching an antidepressant commercial, right? (laughs) You know, and, you know, there's a problem when you're not laughing at anything, right? There's a, you know, and be able to acknowledge that, you know what, this is problematic Mm -hmm. and I'm burned out. You know, I need to get some help. Uh, That may be better for for everybody else around you. Yeah. One thing I noticed about myself when I was caring for my grandfather is that things that my kids would do that normally I would find funny or I would enjoy with them just were annoying. I just wanted them to like, you know, just stop, you know. And I recognized that I was becoming pretty abrasive with Mm -hmm. them, Mm -hmm. you know, because I had no bandwidth. Mm -hmm. Like I had nothing left. I wasn't pouring anything into me. Right. It was all just going straight out, you right. know, to someone else. And so I also think that's something that people should look out for, right? Right. So, you know, when you crumble, there are casualties around, right? You know, your kids may not be used to this person. Right. Right. But why is she all of a sudden screaming so at cranky. us? For those, for, for those silly jokes that we usually, you know, these yeah. you know, redundant jokes. But, but yeah, you know, I think that, you know, being able to take feedback from other people. Right. Instead of getting defended, right? You know, I, I know that I have a family who's very open about, you know, talking to each other. And I, I took feedback from my wife. I took fee- feedback from my kids, you know, just so that, just so that I, I know that, you know, I, I want to still operate within a certain lane where I'm not going to cause a casualty to other people. Right. And I'm not going to displace anger on other people just because I'm stressed out about taking care of my father. Right. Right. And, and so that's really important to be able to recognize, you know, other people not trying to be critical of you, but to, to kind of give you, you know, give you some warning that, that, hey, you're not acting like yourself and, and be able to take that feedback and not get so defended about it, but do something about it. Right. Right. I think recognizing, too, that this for most people is not a short game. It's a long game. Sure. Right. Mm-hmm. And so to be able to sustain and maintain over the course of time, you have to have that go-to. So right. whether it is a spouse or a professional or someone that you can talk to, right. you know, just to kind of download what's going on, right. you know, and help you stay grounded and stay well is essential. Right. And if you're not a person who's, you know, who's open to vulnerability, you know, get a therapist, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're, if it's hard for you to reveal to your friends about the, the struggles that you may have, and I mean, think about the weight of carrying that burden of caretaking and you can't you have to be tough and you can't tell anybody how vulnerable you feel i mean it's like being on an island in the middle of the pacific right and mm-hmm. and, and you feel like there's no rescue inside i mean think about what kind of a burden that creates for a person yeah 
right? And so having someone out there, even if it's a therapist that you hire once a week just to talk to, you know, even if you get nothing out of it, you know, just have someone there who's on your side, you know, who can kind of reach out to you if you're in trouble. I think it's priceless, right? It is priceless. Let's also talk about just some practical things. Like I told you, I would get up early just so I could have that time by myself, just sort of meditate for the day and focus. I probably hit 200 golf balls three or four times a week just Mm -hmm. because I didn't have time to play a full round of Mm -hmm. golf, but Mm -hmm. I could go to the range, you know? And so, I mean, those kinds of things, are those equally as helpful or was that maybe just my way of... (laughs) No, I mean, I think everybody has different ways of, you know, dealing with stress, right? Right. And you want to be, you know, you want to try to unplug yourself from obligations. You know, know, it is, you know, it's an obligation. Let's face it, it's an obligation having to take care of somebody, right? Mm -hmm. And if, you know, sometimes, you know, I, I get that people like to go and have a round of golf to unwind but you know sometimes they take that round of golf a little too seriously because there's a measure to it right mm-hmm. it becomes you know it becomes something that you have to be plugged into you know try to figure out something that where, where it can kind of remove you from you know from having to, to think about performance right. you know having an extra burden of having to perform you know go to the spa and don't feel obligated to listen to the problems of the massage therapist and offer a solution, <laughs> right? It is okay to say, please don't talk to me. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> right. And, and I, I think, you know, it's being able to set limits, you know, with yourself about what, how much you can accomplish, you know, realistic limits so that, so that you don't feel like the next thing that's going to, to be, that you're going to be saddled with is going to be the thing that's going to take you down. Right. Right. You know, make sure you have some limits set. Make sure that you understand what kind of activities would, would kind of unplug you from this, you know, the, the obligations that you typically think about. You know, make sure you have people that you can reach out to, right? Whether it's a therapist or a friend from across the country who's not critical. Because right. I think a lot of times when we, you know, when we reveal vulnerability, we feel like people may criticize us, mm-hmm. right? And so find that safe space where you can be vulnerable, you know, discuss your weakness, and not feel like someone's going to judge you, right? right? And have that person around. And, and, you know, get into meditation, get into yoga, whatever works for you in terms of activities that would unplug you from having to think about the obligations. Right. So just taking time for you, maybe a little bit mm-hmm. every day. Mm-hmm. Just to give have, you- a, have some structure about that, right? Right. You know, if it's not every day, every other day, right? Just something that you can look forward to where you don't, you're, you know it's your private time where you're not saddled with the burden. Right. Right. And, and you know, I use the word burden because it, it did feel like a burden, right? It's okay to admit that, you know, I wanted to micromanage the care for my father, yeah. okay? But I knew it was a burden, right? I recognized that it was a burden. It's okay. And because sometimes people feel like, well, if I say that it's a burden, then, you know, somehow I'm betraying my, my family member. No, it is. And be able to talk about that. Acknowledging it right. for what it is and, and being able to put some action steps for yourself to it, right? No, absolutely. I think this is such a great topic that is overlooked a lot by so many people because, you know, we're so busy providing care. Right. And as professional caregivers, right? Right. <laughs> and problem solvers, it is something that you find yourself on that side of, you know, on that side of the coin all the time. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It, I think that it's a discussion that, you know, needs to continue to be had. We have it a lot, even with mm-hmm. our team here, even, mm-hmm. you know, with our therapy team and, and our providers that work so diligently with our clients. Mm-hmm. There are times when it's like, okay, 
We're going to take a break and we're going to celebrate you today. Right. You know, we tend to have dessert around here quite a bit. So mm-hmm. we celebrate birthdays and we celebrate right. things. And But so even in the midst of the stress and of caring for someone else and helping someone right. get to their ultimate goal, you still have to take those times right. to celebrate small things and to just pause and it not be about that person. Let it be about something more normal. Right. And, you know, this is a great environment to work in because, you know, we have birthday cakes almost every other day. They're very healthy, though. They're very healthy. I I don't, I, 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 you know, I'm not going to comment on that. I just, you know, I just. Cake should be cake. It's okay. I eat what's in front of me. But, you know, I do think that, you know, so many families, they go through this struggle and they don't realize the impact of caretaking on them. Yeah. Right. And I try very hard to, you know, because of my experiences, you know, I try really hard to think from the family's perspective, right? And I, yeah. I do include them in my thoughts, you know, because whenever I get a client, it's not just the client that's, you know, who's struggling. It's everyone around right. who have been through this, this adventure a week, a month, six months, a year, mm-hmm. right? And they're exhausted as well. I mean, they're, you know, right. a lot of times they're just relieved that, you know, a family member is getting help and that, that they can hand this off to professionals. It provides a little bit of respite for them. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's, you know, because it, it's, again, it's like me trying to figure out pancreatic cancer, right? I don't know how to explain to you my 30 years of using psychotropic medications, right, mm-hmm. in a, you know, in a five-minute lecture, right? <laughs> I don't know how many papers you have to read in order to, to kind of get some of the, you know, I, I would say like almost algorithm and diagrams that I have in my head. Right. It's really hard to kind of provide that, but I, I think that it is, you know, I encourage all the clinicians to, you know, think not just about the autonomy of the patients, but the, you know, the struggles of the whole team behind a patient getting to help, right? right. Family members who have gone through this, you know, I mean, they suffered as much as our clients. Yeah. Right. And it's not, it's a whole system that's been disrupted from an illness, right? They're casualties to the the illness. Yeah. I hate to say it, but we're out of time. It goes so fast. So (laughs) I really appreciate you joining me for this discussion and for you just sharing some of your story. Any final thoughts on understanding the human condition from Dr. Frank Chen? Well, I think the simple thought is that, you know, don't be afraid to seek out a therapist Mm -hmm. or a psychiatrist. You know, if if you're smart, you know, you wouldn't try to fix a car with black smoke coming out of the tailpipe, right? And, you know, it's a fairly complex job, right? So why would you try to fix mental health issues? Good. Thank you. It's a good one. Well, if you'd like more information on this topic, or if you'd like more information on Jay Flowers Health Institute, you can reach us on our website at jflowershealth.com. Or you can call us at 713-783-6655. I would like to remind everybody watching and listening that there are numerous places that you can find our podcast. YouTube, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, iHeartRadio. So please feel free to tune into any of those to see our upcoming podcast. And share on social media if you think somebody would benefit from seeing this. We want to also remind you that the clear diagnosis is key to getting the best treatment possible. So we are always happy to help with that. Hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks for joining.
And I'd like to remind everyone watching or listening to us that there are numerous platforms to find our podcast, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Please share this episode on social media or with someone that you think it could help. Absolutely. And we remind you also that a clear diagnosis is key to the most effective treatment possible. Yes, it is. See you next week. Thanks again, Robin. Thank you.